there's no better course. So, and cross country skiing is meant to be hard. Uh, really fun racing. Hi, I'm Rosie Frankowski from AP. See, here we have with the hero Bjorn Daly. That's the great thing about sport. Make it rain. Make make it rain. You play to win. It is. I mean, that's that's our sport. So, toughen up, train harder, and get in that pack and make it rain. Make it rain. Make it make it rain. First of all, make it rain. Make it rain. You see, the critic of air must use air to make a case against air. The fact that he's able to make an argument at all proves that he's wrong. And uh, and from that, I, it's sort of up to me to, to pick the ones that I really like, which can't be super hard. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you have experience with testing two very nice pairs of skis. You know that they feel exactly the same. On the back stretch, it is Mellon and Richardson. During the race, she heard me. I'm very flattered about that. <laughs> you are skiing very wise. You know, we're gonna have to work hard. We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to train hard. But you know, this, this group has got a has got an already work ethic. You know, so that's not gonna be the problem. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Cedar Skier Podcast. It's all right. It took me five takes to say good morning uh, to all of you. Good morning, Sunday morning. Um, actually, it's not Sunday morning. It's what day is it? It's Monday. It's Monday morning, and you have tuned in to the largest and fastest growing podcast in the entire world, even larger than Joe Rogan, better than Joe Rogan, better than uh, Ben Shapiro, better than Daily morning something insert fastest growing podcast here you go yeah we were trying to make fun of donald trump there if you didn't if you didn't see that donald trump is starting to sell like baseball cards for himself oh man it's unbelievable uh the the line that he says right away he's like better than washington better than lincoln i think he said the other way around yeah he's like hi it's donald trump hopefully your favorite president Better than Lincoln, better than Washington. It's just unbelievable. <clears throat> um, I like how he starts up by saying, hopefully your favorite president, and then he says he's better than Lincoln and Washington. Like, what? That, have some confidence at least. If you're, if you're going to follow that up with, like, better... All right, enough. You came here to listen to skiing. Let's move past politics. Uh, so 
hey, happy new year, kind of, right? Uh, it's January 2nd as I'm recording this right now, but you know, you've probably been out for your New Year's Eve ski, a New Year's Day ski, and now it's day number two for you and your annual hours. This is your year, right? Ajay, can you play that sound clip of Devin Kershaw saying, this is your year? We can insert that in later, maybe. Um, so this is your year, right? You're going to train big time. You're going to, you're going to, um, you know, eat clean and lift weights four days a week, you know, and do all these good things and, and, um, and hopefully that'll be great and you can have a great year because of it. Personally, tomorrow, I'm hoping that we can maybe get a special guest on the podcast. That would be my wife, Christy. Every year we enjoy trying to like, well, we we kind of think about our year by looking at the goals we had set and then we set new goals for each year. It's like our little tradition. Um, we usually try to do it on New Year's Eve, but we actually had some guests over here New Year's Eve, so we didn't do it. And we were just so tired. We went to bed at like 10 o'clock. Uh, we, I was like, guys, we could go to bed at five and just like celebrate Norwegian New Year's Eve. Uh, but we stayed up a little bit. We watched Mr. Bean Christmas. So if you're confused, I, I had my, my older brother and his wife were here. They were, uh, traveling back home from Santa Fe. And so they stopped in through Leadville and we just had a grand old time for a couple days. Uh, but yeah, so New Year's Eve for me was, we were opening some presents. We had a turkey dinner. We made popcorn and watched Mr. Bean, um, on the Mr. Bean Christmas. If you don't know what I'm talking about, shame on you. You're the Dumbo, okay? Get yourself tuned in. Pull up Mr. Bean and watch the Christmas episode. It's a classic. You can watch it any day of the year, okay? Um, So that's what we did. And I also went to Aspen and did some cross-country skiing myself. My brother and I make this uh, pilgrimage there once a year. It's usually on this. Actually, for the last two years now, it, it, it could be a new tradition, New Year's Eve, driving to Aspen, skiing all day and driving home. Uh, last year, we took the Sprinter van and went the night before. It was it was like 80 inches of powder in Aspen over like a four-day stretch or something like that. And he got 30 fresh inches of powder on New Year's Day. And there was like no one there. Dro- drove him up to Aspen Highlands. And he does this because his pass that he has, which is kind of for Big Sky, Montana, but he has a couple of free days. And one of them is at Aspen. So we try to hit that up. But yeah, he... We're like driving the Sprinter van into Aspen, and I'm thinking, this could be a nightmare. You know, like, Aspen's going to be glitzy and crowded. Well, turns out I just take the roundabout, drive right up to Highlands, pull right into the little, like, right up to the to the main entrance. So there's, like, little nice timed parking spots. You can stay for 10, 30, 45, 90 minutes even, like, drop-off spots. So I pull the Sprinter van in, he hops out, he skis the greatest day of his entire life. I drive over to the high school, like a block away, cross-country ski, actually pretty decent, even in falling snow, because the 90 kilometers of free trails in Aspen are groomed like every 15 minutes. So as I'm skiing, I'm still enjoying it, and then the piston boy comes by, I'm enjoying it even more. I get in the Sprinter van, I rest a little bit, I drink some water have some extra coffee go out and ski some more get back in the sprinter van drive over to aspen highlands sit in the 90 minute parking spot you know i'm just chillaxing and then my brother comes out and we drive home and it was i i mean i had to think i was thinking for a while like the sprinter van is 
They're just going to go, you can't park that here. Like, not that. You can't have that car here. It's not a 2023 Escalade. Get lost. But they didn't They didn't even do that. They were very helpful. And then even when Tom came out, this is last year I'm talking about with the Sprinter van, you know, they had nice people to help me back out my car so I didn't run into anyone. And then off we go to the races. Um, and this year, the Sprinter van needs an oil change bad. So we didn't take the Sprinter. We just took Tom's car. Um, he got five hours of free show. You know, I talked to him basically straight for two and a half hours and, you know, gave a lot of dialogue and he kind of nodded his head and then every once in a while would let him insert his opinions. Uh, it was a very one-sided conversation. No, I'm just kidding. It wasn't that bad, but um, I probably should charge him for that. I mean, he paid for gas. It was his car. I gave him free show. It was a pretty equal trade-off. Uh, and then on the way back, we had actually a, a just scintillating debate over skill comparison in terms of like economy performance benefits related to skiing and running and uh we spent like an hour and a half trying to discuss the skill component to running and the skill component to like skate skiing and which one had the larger magnitude impact on performance it it was incredible how (laughs) How we can do this for like we could do this for hours. I might have to have Tom on the podcast, like you know, because he's got his like Lake Effect Running Club going on now. They went to U.S. Club Nationals, which is probably the greatest sporting event known to man. Actually, I think it's like, especially in America. I mean, you want to see people who are passionate and like what real sport development is about. Club Nats cross country. You know, you get you you'll get like six seven hundred people, and it's all like. Everything from Cole Hawker, who won the race, down to like Division Three alumni. He ran his last college race ten years ago, but he still dreams big and trains eighty miles a week. Um, and so Tom and his club went down there, and they ran really well. So he's trying to invite me to get on this club team, and I just don't know if I can do it. I'm not very fast anymore, and whenever I try to get fast, I feel like I get hurt. So I'm trying to convince him that maybe. They need a Lake Effect Mutts team. So, you know, Mountain Ultra Trail. Maybe I could be kind of like the founding member there too. And Turi, his wife, was very excited about that because, you know, Izzy, our associate marketing intern producer, um, she is insta-famous right now. Um, So anyway, we're 10 minutes into the show. We haven't even (laughs) touched on Tour de Ski. I know that's why he came here. And it's important, right, guys? So you got to get here. You came. You got to be first in line, right? If you if you work in media, you know that information, factual truth, is really not important anymore in today's world. It's about being first. It's about being first. It's about being flashy. It's about having a good reel. It's about having a good headline, and we pull you in hopefully for those reasons. Big day in cross country skiing today. I'm super pumped, and my excitement level is through the roof because we've got. U.S. cross-country nationals going on in Michigan. We've got the Tour to Ski tomorrow. We've already got two days of Tour to Ski to talk about. I mean, there's just so much to digest. I think what I need before I get going, a cold sip of coffee. We're going to keep the mic going so you can listen to me sip it. Oh, 5.30 in the morning. The dedication is unbelievable. Um, by the way, if you're listening to this grip wax nation, fellows, you're part of a, a really esteemed fraternity 
No, we don't have 14 billion listeners, okay? When you send me an email, I reply to you. And I've got a couple this week, and one of them I replied to almost immediately, and another one I did not reply to for several days. But the only reason is because I felt like it was important to take a little bit of a break over the Christmas season because the last month has been like absolutely nuts for me. And I'm not even sure if I explained that on my last show, but the personal segment's pretty much over here. So let's get to tour to ski action. Today on the show, we'll talk some tour to ski. Let's talk some U.S. Nationals. Let's give you a grooming report. Maybe if I remember, I'll try to uh, try to recall some sort of a pet peeve because I bet there's one out there. So tour to ski right now. How about, um, you know, I, I'm just going to kind of hit some quick bullet points. I mean, this the sprint... So, so I watched the sprints, and then I watched the uh, classic races. And my main takeaway from the sprints was I was just jacked to see Ben Ogden qualify in fourth, you know? And um, I'm turning it on, and it didn't even really occur to me until they started. Well, right, right when they left him, you know, on the introductions, Ben, I'm like, whoa, he's got bib four on. Like, this guy is... He is legit now. You know, he, he keeps kind of having these, uh, you know, I don't know, there's there's this excitement, this aura about him, and um, and I love it. And Bib 4, though, that's legit. Like, now you're thinking, okay, the finals, he's going to get in the finals, you know? And and even in, so his quarterfinal goes off, and, of course, he has the, the pull breaks. And right there, like, my initial reaction, at least, was like, ah, oh, man, this is... This is kind of vintage Ben Ogden too, right? He's he's got that scrappy persona and like now he's broken a pole and it's over. Like his day is over. It's done. It's dusted. Let's move on. And I I couldn't believe actually how quickly he reinserted himself into that race. It was like a minute and a half in, he's back in it. And um I, I actually you know, it's I, I guess it didn't even look like it took that much out of him. You could see him like really standing up tall to get that oxygen into him, into his body on the downhill. I don't know if you noticed that. Go back and watch it. Okay, we're going to give you all the inside deets here. Uh, he, he was like, you know, relaxing the arms, just letting him hang and stood up really tall and uh, and trying to recover. I'm like, okay, smart. Good job, Ben. Now you just got to like mentally move past that moment, you know? Um and if I recall, I don't. I don't think his field, like that first heat, was like insane. Um, you know that to have him in there. But uh, anyway, you know when it came down to that, came, came into the home stretch kind of area right before the home stretch, I was like, he's gonna make this. He should be fine. And to have him kind of get out out leaned there right at the end was that just took the air right out of me. But I, I wish I wish we could get a soundbite from Ben on that sprint. Like what? really was going through his mind like was it when he kind of looks back on that race there was a that's a lot to mentally overcome in a in a very short amount of time you know and it, it's hard for me to really relate to that other than you know the sprint course the other day was, it was actually a little bit longer you know over three minutes so like this is somewhere in between on a track running a thousand and a, and a mile and I mean you're talking like that's like if you fell <laughs> at the beginning which happens quite a lot except you you got you like didn't get up for a while like you way back so um I don't know if it was just one of those cases where sometimes it's so difficult to re-engage yourself mentally and emotionally and then on top of that physically you're a little more cooked than you normally would that you just can't do it but yeah man that was a big blow 
Um, that was rough. Now, on the, on the flip side, you got to still be excited because it appears to me that he he might be the real deal. Like he's he's someone. He's a gamer. Okay. I think he is establishing new norms when it comes to how you are are supposed to wear a hat while you're racing now. <laughs> I don't know if you guys noticed this. Like, like it just rests on the top of his head, and he like has that cone space that is above his cranium, and I think it just looks so tight. Make sure you get the front forward a little bit so that when you get your sunglasses on, you do not show forehead. How... What is with this? These people who have their hats so far back, their foreheads are probably freezing. That's not how you do it. You got to do it like Ben Ogden. You get your hat over the forehead. You make sure that the crease, the that the the sunglasses cover it. So your entire face, there's no skin exposed. Just unacceptable. So Ben, you're doing it right. That's how you wear a hat. You're also doing it right with skiing. Keep being exciting. Keep bringing it. Um, and then, you know, as far as Ben's race is race went the next day, he had the distance race. Uh, I'm just going to pull up. Let's see if I can find out of my 100,000 tabs I have open. All right. So distance. Here we go. Men's distance. 10K. Um, Nienget had the fastest time by like a mile craziness. Oh, those Norwegians really did well. Where is, Where are you, Ben? Okay. So Ben finished... 18th um the 28th fastest time here's the other thing i'm not you know some people have been telling me lately that they are proud that i really really know the sport or whatever but i i definitely i have to push back and go no i'm the when i'm on the broadcast it's very much like i'm on the grind weeks in advance trying to do my due diligence and research and yeah i bring some level of experience but definitely not i uh, my eye is certainly developing okay so i appreciate the compliments it means a lot to me and um probably if there's if there is any positives coming out of my broadcast you just got to know that like i was broadcasting beanie baby football games in my rec room from literally age four until midway through eighth grade so that's where that comes from. But anyway, I was going to say that I'm not I'm not I'm not positive I could look at Ben Ogden and go this is his best technique. You know, like I feel like in sprint races he's got a really good jolt of energy in classic sprints when it comes to uphills and and skates skate skiing it's still kind of the same and and he just sort of brings this aggressiveness to both of them. So I, I don't know if I could say like he's going to be more relevant in one or the other, but I also feel like uh, it doesn't make sense to me that he, if you can do that in the sprints, that you wouldn't be able to do that in like a 10K. Um, it seems like at this point, he should understand at least like, you know, to some degree, the pacing elements of a distance race. So if your fitness is there, like why wouldn't you just bring the same acumen to a distance race? So yeah, I I was a little bit not not like disappointed, maybe the wrong word. I know he's still kind of young and everything, but I don't. What I don't want to see happen with Ben Ogden is have him be a guy that only is contending in sprint events, and then for really no excuse, he doesn't contend in the other stuff. Like it, it, the sport just shouldn't. It's not that. 
di- what, what diametric or I don't know. It's not. It doesn't have. It's not the same thing as like demanding Iliad Kipchoge to be relevant in a two hundred meter dash. You know, and sometimes I feel like skiers tend to like pigeonhole themselves way too much. Like the the anaerobic and aerobic physiological demands of cross country skiing are extremely unique. But one of the cool things is that you know, given if you have excellent technique, excellent downhill ability, you know, a good internal innate knowledge of your pacing and everything, and you just have kind of a good competitive sense as well, strategically, there's not a whole lot of reason why you wouldn't be able to compete in a wide range of disciplines. And honestly, Clavo is kind of a perfect example of that because I get it. He's extremely dynamic and explosive, but like (coughs) he's not the same kind of power that say Ray Lewis is you know, or um, who's that wide receiver for the Kansas City Chiefs, now the Dolphins, Tyreek Hill. You see guys like that who are just so fast twitch. They're so twitchy, right? Twitch muscle, fast twitch muscle. Clavo's explosiveness is way more dependent upon his body control, his ability to leverage um, a dynamic body position, you know, in each phase of, of pulling and skating. So incredible balance, incredible, um, you know, technique, I guess, is the, the just broad term you would have to say to describe it. You know, and like, yeah, he has some wiriness, some explosiveness for sure. But like, so does Evan Jager. <laughs> like, I mean, Evan Jager, steeplechaser, right? He, Evan Jager could dunk a basketball. Like, he's very, he, he also has a level of explosiveness that doesn't prevent him from running a 13.01 5K. And I, I feel like Clabo is a little bit like that, personally. Like, he's not big and bulky and just like, you know, he's someone who you would expect to go in the weight room and, like, deadlift 500 pounds. I, there's no way, you know. like and I, and I like athletes like that. And I just feel like, you know, Ben, <clears throat> Ben's not really maybe either of those. So, so you got to be someone who, like has that endurance, you know, and, and I guess I just feel like that that's not going to take away from your sprinting. Like, and especially the other day, you know, that sprint course was favoring people with some strength, which reminds me, can I just flip way across the script here? Nadine Fandrich, who's skiing extremely well. That was one thing that kind of caught my eye as I watched these two women's races back to back was Fandrich just looked amazing in the sprints you know, gets that yellow bib leader's jersey. And then in the distance race, I mean, credit to her, she stayed with the group for a while, but then really fell off. I mean, really fell off. And like, I don't know, I, it didn't seem like the pace was that hot. And I'm trying to just scroll down here to see like her, her time. She finished ninth, but she had the 31st fastest time um, for the women. And I, I don't know, like, is, I guess she's a sprinter, you know, and, and uh, it, it just, it seems to me like that course was, uh, looked like a really fun course, by the way, like, if I would have been there, minimum five-hour ski session, like, if I'm a coach or a wax tech, I definitely would have been, like, avoiding my athletes, like, I'm gonna go test your skis again, and just d- been double pulling around the loops forever, it just looked so fun, like, I love it when there's courses where the classic track, like, doesn't have to come off hardly at all because, you know, the turns aren't so sharp. It was just these big, nice, winding, swooping hills. Rosie Brennan brought that up in her post-race comments. Like, that really favored her. Anyway, and maybe that made it just way harder for Fanbridge. I don't know. It must have. 
because she did kind of try to stay with that Peloton, then she kind of fell off. Uh, but hey, another person, an American, Julia Kern, you know, she sort of pigeonholed herself a little. Well, she hasn't pigeonholed herself. I think the the media, public, fans, coaches, whatever, like they sort of look at her like she's a sprinter. Well, but yeah, because she's had success there, more success earlier on in her career. But hey, she had the 15th fastest time, finished 12th overall. Great race by Julia Kern. She's another athlete where I think I think you gotta like you gotta start to go. Hey, these 10ks and sometimes 5ks. That's a great move for someone like Kern. She doesn't want to have to do. I mean, there is going to be a 50k now, but like the longer the race is, uh, especially as it is an individual start, like those are going to be di- more difficult for her. But I really hope she gets this mentality of like, there's no reason why I can't race a really good 10k on skis. And it seemed like that was kind of a breakthrough maybe on Saturday. I don't know. Like, that's what I'm watching as I'm seeing it. You know, as a fan, I'm like, oh, this is the Julia Curran that I think should be happening. Yes. Like, it's a distance day today. Okay. Don't get 50th. Like, be right up there. There's no reason you you don't have, you know, you, you shouldn't be. Like, you're strong. You're powerful. Um, and, and we're not asking you to double pull 100K. You know, Ida Dahl was right in there, by the way, speaking of 100K stuff. <clears throat> um, but anyway, yeah, yeah. So that was a one takeaway. I know I'm kind of like just throwing in these takeaways. This is not a very organized podcast, as you can tell. We're, we're recording live here, Shovel Lake Public Radio. Uh, so, I mean, we probably should take a break. Before we do, actually, though, let's – can we run the run the clip of Julia Kern post-race comments after Tour de Ski? Here we go. Here she is. Julia, how'd it go out there today? Um, It was really hard and really good. It was a game of um, send it, die, and come back to life. <laughs> a few times on repeat. <laughs> a few times on repeat. You got to be pretty stoked with your result, though. Yeah, I'm really happy. This is the best feeling distance race of the year, and I, I've had a few weeks off from distance racing, so I wasn't sure how it would go. But um, it was the first race this year in distance where I felt like I could, yeah, die and come back to life. <laughs> uh, thoughts moving ahead for the next couple of stages? Um, I'm really excited just to take it day by day and see see how my energy feels. And uh, I love to race, so the tour is a really exciting time for me. Congrats. Excellent to hear that from Julia Kern. If you can die and come back to life in a ski race, that's a great sign, especially at altitude. In fact, um, so I'm, I'm, by the way, I, I have some new listeners here, so I got to kind of like preface this. I'm going to be a little bit sarcastic here. But one of the things I love doing is, you know, inserting myself into the narrative um, gregariously. Is that a word? Ajay, look that one up. Ajay, our German Shepherd Border Collie is... Fast asleep on the chair that I picked up off the side of the road because that's the level of income that I have right now. Um, I thought this chair was going to be one of those kind of like cool Norwegian Ikea looking chairs and turns out it's not really that comfortable at all. So kind of became Ajay's bed here in the studio. But she's not actually at the computer helping me look up words. Anyway, what I was going to say is, you know, one thing that I would I, I feel like is one of my strengths in in these podunk citizens races, like, hey, I can go really hard in this hill because I'm gonna die. I'll be able to come back because I've got this kind of like aerobic base. Like I haven't done a speed workout in maybe I don't know, like five years, but lots of lots of nice volume, lots of that dreaded L two work, you know, master blaster type effort level stuff, and and it's helped in some ways. And so maybe maybe Julia Kern is breaking ground in that way as well. So we have this confidence in the endurance strength that, hey, I blew up a little bit. I, I'm reaching, but I'm coming back. Yeah, she definitely didn't die. Like, she went for it. 
Um, now that's a little bit unfortunately contrasted with I think what we saw with Diggins and so you're going to hear her kind of talk about that in this next clip her reflections Jesse Diggins from the Tour de Ski here we go Jesse how was it out there today yeah um so I guess I look at it as breaking it into two parts how the race went in terms of outcome and then how it went in terms of the process and the effort and the things that I could directly control. And I was really, really proud of the process. Um, my body felt good. I felt like I got a good warm up. Um, I did feel like I went out a little bit aggressively, just kind of going for broke. And I had a little like mini, like, blow up out there but got it back under control and honestly I was really proud of how I skied I kept fighting the whole time it was really um really pushing it and I felt like I really laid it all out there so I was really proud of that um bigger picture like there's a lot of things that need to come together in order for it to be a really stellar result those things didn't come together um today or yesterday and that's okay sometimes that happens and we're working on it and I have faith that going forward it's gonna just get better and better so um, I'm really proud of our staff they're working really hard um, and I'm proud of the team and how everyone's kind of rolling through the logistics of the tour on to stage three in Oberstdorf what are your uh, thoughts uh, looking ahead to going to Germany um, we're staying at a really adorable little farm so that's really fun um, they took great care of us at World Champs, so, you know, we're really glad to be going there. It's, you know, it's all about the little things. Um, but excited to go race really hard. Um, and, yeah, I really take the tour one day at a time, one stage at a time. So just now just focusing forward on how do we make this a very efficient travel day, how do I take care of myself, make sure recovery is going well, so that then I can be ready for the 10K. Thank you, Jesse. So there you are hearing from Jesse Diggins. Diggins um, finished yesterday. Uh, let's see. I just had it up. Oh, no. Go back to it. Come on now. 30th? 30th place yesterday. 27th fastest time. And um, as I was watching the race, you know, it did occur to me. At one point, I think she had slid up to maybe within a minute 11. 105. I mean, she was she she really did go out pretty aggressively and went for broke, which um, you know on this course I think I think that's actually kind of okay, especially if she thinks, hey, I'm really fit and I can work work in here. Let's just go because the hill again the hills like on this course looked pretty friendly. You saw the guys double pulling like large portions of this course, so it was one of those deals where yeah, even though it was warm, clister, all of that stuff. Uh, Diggins, it seems to me, sometimes if she has a bad day, it's because there's an issue with kick or something like that, or the skis are really slow, you know, cause then she can't really excel on the downhills, which is another one of her strengths. So this course, you know, when in doubt, there was a lot of sections you probably could kind of muscle out when in doubt, muscle out, when in doubt, muscle out, um, which has always been my strategy personally. So if I could do it, I'm sure Jesse could do it. Just kidding. Sorry. If that was offensive, you can turn off the radio right now. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I had no problems with that. I thought that was sweet. And it was a little bit surprising as I saw Heidi Vang, who started way, way back as well. At one point in the race, mm, oh God, I'm getting out of breath just talking about that. That's the difference in my fitness level and some of these amazing women. Heidi Vang had the sixth fastest time, it looks like. Man, I, I was thinking she might have even would have had the... Oh, no, no, Kara Tuniskanen, obviously. 
Yeah, she did really well, too. Made up a ton of time, 28.07. Um, but Heidi Vang was moving up through the field and at one point was you know was with Jesse Diggins. And, I mean, Heidi Vang's a really exceptional classic skier, obviously. I know that that's maybe one of the harder things for Jesse, but um, yeah, I thought maybe maybe she'd go with her. I thought it was going to be one of those days, right, where she just, hey, she's, she's coming out hard. She's passing a lot of people. She's going to be up by um julia kern before you know it and then it was as she was falling back jesse was and julia kern was doing great i was like wow this is impressive for kern maybe disappointing for for jesse uh it does make me wonder you know that especially considering how exceptional davos was for diggins and how she sort of has this dialed in she's often in hitting uh hitting sort of a sharpness around the tour to ski uh, not not like the top peak, but sort of like a mid-season sharpness. Uh, it, it's surprising to me that she's had these two results that she's had. So, you know, there hasn't been like, a, hey, I was, I had a 103 degree fever type thing. You never really know. I mean, she's very professional there. Even though, even some of the things, there's a lot of, when she said, there's a lot of things that have to come together, you know, to get that outcome performance, like, and they just didn't, then they haven't the last two days. Like, I wonder what that means, you know, was it, was it something really simple, but, but influential, like a ski choice thing or something like that? I mean, um, I, I don't know. One thing I give Jesse Diggins a lot of credit for, cause I think, wasn't there a world championships where it was, it was right around the 2018, so maybe 2019, maybe it was 2019, but I, I thought there was a world's worlds where she had like a fourth, a fifth and eighth or, you know, it was all these like pretty good performances, but she definitely seemed like she had like the fitness to maybe even win like multiple events or at least podium in multiple events. And I think the, our skis were not good that year. And she just didn't really, she didn't like come out and say that, you know, and she definitely, you know, it'd be easy to do that. So credit to her if that's an issue that's going on. Um, Hey, one thing, one thing I've never brought up on the show really, uh, that I, I've always, I've always, I've, I've wondered this. So if you're like, one of those, one of those people who know a lot more than I do, and you listen to this show. Does it is it just me, or does it seem like the Finns and Swedes and Norwegian women, when they skate ski, and even a little bit in classic, but I think it's more noticeable in skate ski. If you kind of look at their their angles with like everything kind of lower body related, so like shin angles, and then like their the forward the forward uh direction of from their shoulders and hips like everything kind of down the track i feel like if you took a norwegian woman and a norwegian man and just had like just were watching their movement body movement patterns during a skate ski they would look a lot more similar than if you took an american man and an american woman um and and what I'm getting at is, it seems like the new skate ski form, you know, like the the as the sports developed, obviously, like there's there's even little tweaks on like as athletes get better, you know, they get better at that push, the double push skate, getting up more forward, getting that force impulse to happen right over the top of their ski. I mean, like the the greatest example, obviously, uh, Kruger for Norway. I mean, it's just it's it's a thing of beauty to watch him skate ski. And, and that, if that's the ideal, if Kruger's the ideal, that athletic dynamic skate push, I feel like the Scandinavian women are, are like really close to doing that, what the men are doing. But on the American side, I can't think of a, 
an American female skier who has a really dynamic looking skate push. Kern honestly might be the best. Like, um, Jesse's obviously fast, you know, like I can't argue about that, but, but when you watch her skating versus like, I'm, you know, the Swedes when like the skate sprint, you know, the, the Maya Dahlquist, Emma Rebaum, I mean, they just, they, they have the same bounce and straight down the track and they're, they're, um, no matter if they're on the, going from their right to left or left to right, from a body weight uh, shifting, it's all the same. It's like uniform, kind of like Kruger has that, where you just you can't even tell. Whereas like, um, and the Americans look a little more kind of like, you know, one side is kind of maybe their good side, or their hips sort of shift over when they're when they are gliding on a certain side. They don't really have that. Their their weight sometimes is a little more back on their heel. It's not quite up and over the top, and they don't have that characteristic. Um, like raise in their boot on each force impulse when they're coming down. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm like overthinking it way too much, but I definitely feel like from just the eye test, it seems like the Norwegian women are closer to replicating the dynamicness of the Norwegian men and just the men in general on tour. Cause I would tend to say that the men have been able to more uniformly grasp that Whereas, like, you know, when skating first kind of came around, that double push wasn't even as evident. You know, like, the flexion um, pumping motion, even just of the lower body, wasn't as dynamic, you know, 15, 20 years ago as it is now. Um, and, yeah, guys like Klabo, it's just incredible where you see, like, his skis are traveling straight down the track, almost like he's double pulling on one ski. And all he's doing is, like flipping the ski so like first he's gliding on his right and then he gets up and over the top like he's gonna do a double pull motion he puts the force impulse down and flexes his ankle and then the other ski the left ski just comes into place and is still pointing down the track he's not like uh, pizza pieing down the course at all it's crazy now one thing travel day she made a comment about being efficient on recovering all that that is important but uh, someone on the, or andrew on the broadcast was saying it was like a three and a half hour trip uh, like if you race in the morning here, mi- even midday, which I think it was, I think it was kind of closer to midday. These guys are lucking out. Andrew, you're lucking out right now. You got like, I had to get up at, I'm well, okay. I shouldn't say anything. One of the, rep- one of the times he was up at like midnight. Uh, but man, I had some uncomfortably early broadcasts the other day too. Anyway, uh, Ober's that if it's three and a half hours, like you finish your race, you pack up, you eat, you do all the, like your fists, whatever you got to do to, you know doping control i don't know talk to the media whatever like we leave at four and drive there and it's 7 30 and now like you have the entire next day of just like shake out rest recover that's not that bad like pellegrino woke up and drove over five mountain passes in a five-hour drive to a morning sprint and one so i think i mean i know it's if you if you listen like me to minnesota sports talk radio <laughs> I do, sometimes I don't even know why I say the things I do on this podcast. If you listen to me, like like me, we have probably some Minnesota listeners. Actually, I was looking at some of the demographics. It's great. Hi Duluth, hi Duluth listeners, um, hi Minnesota listeners, hi Mound Prairie. Good morning, good morning to all of you, and good morning if you're in Chaska or Wyzetta. Um, where where was I going here? Oh, the body clock whole thing, the travel, all that stuff. I think that that is overblown 
And because it's overblown, it has a big effect. So almost like it's overblown, and because it's overblown, it actually isn't overblown. Um, and what I mean by that is like when you do kind of hyper focus on all these things, like I got to get everything right. Oh, now I'm going to have to travel. That's going to be harder. Oh, packing all this stuff up. That's taking, that's draining some of my emotional energy. Um, you know, I got to get used to these things. If it's a, if it's a flight now, it's a time change and flying is difficult and all that. Like those there, I'm not discounting the reality to some of those things. And the, there are some actually truly difficult travel situations. Like I think anytime you add a flight in it's it's so different for the normal person because we're not flying a lot that that you never really know what you're going to get. I mean, like I've flown only a handful of times and only once in my life have I flown with skis for the purpose of skiing and I felt amazing after this like super ridiculous long flight overseas, no rest. The next day I was I felt great. I skied like 25-30k on the Birken Trail. And then the day after that, I skied the actual Birken race and I felt amazing again. Like I just felt great all week. You <laughs> know, like I never really had an issue with it. And I definitely did not sleep much at all. I didn't sleep at all on the flight because I just can't really I maybe fell asleep for like five minutes and woke myself up because I was scared we were gonna plunge into the ocean. Um so flights flights can be different. But like anytime there's driving, I think that's that is so common for people that like if and if you're listening to this and you have races and stuff too, like I don't know, it's it's very doable to like wake up at five o'clock, get your coffee, listen to a podcast, drive yourself two and a half, three hours to a race, get yourself shaked out, and go race and have a good time and have a great day. It's also possible that that you could feel crappy and maybe the drive was a part of it, but but certainly hyper-focusing on that element is probably going to hurt you, you know? And I think sometimes as a professional athlete, because sometimes you're catered to uh, have everything controlled, then all of a sudden it almost makes you more liable to to like differing degrees of travel or not having the right nutrition that you need. Um, I don't know. I you know, even though it was a way less lower level, like I remember this in high school sports, even like middle school sports, I was like always so calculated with all that stuff with running or with basketball. It was very neurotic and um, definitely was aware of it. And, and I mean, I don't regret that, especially now. Like I like having kind of being able to hold both of those things where it's like, you know, at one point in my life, I'm like <laughs> measuring out the amount of water I can drink and, and knowing like exactly three hours and 30 minutes before the race starts, you know, and eating this one type of food beforehand. And then like now I'm <laughs> should I even go to the race today? OK, fine. I guess I will. <laughs> and then like stopping at Circle K and just making some random concoction of cafe mocha latte cedar skier special and driving there and you know, just having a great time. And, you know, I think some of it's like the expectation and pressure isn't there in my life either. So I can't be too critical of these athletes where you go, hey, like, just let just let it go, man. It's going to be fine. It's like these guys are on the World Cup. This is huge. This is a big deal. This is their careers are on the line. That's a totally different dynamic. At the same time, what did Pellegrino say? I think on the podcast he had with that one Norwegian guy, Oyvind Pedersen or Pedersen, uh, um, they, they talked about us on the Faster Skier show where like he can hold on the one hand this idea that, you know, I'm just kind of out here having fun now. 
like I've accomplished all I, I all I really cared to do in this sport. So now I can just kind of be loose and have fun. And look at him. Pellegrino is having just a banner year this year. He's he's, he's skiing amazingly. So and, and athletes talk about this all the time, too. They try to like say, hey, I'm just not going to care. I'm just going to have fun. I'm going to focus on the process. And some athletes experience success doing that and some do not. This is an important concept. Now we're kind of veering off from TDS uh, discussion, but I think this is important to bring up that, okay, on this spectrum, we sort of have, you're either ultra dialed in and you're measuring your oatmeal in the morning and you're making sure that your travel's all just perfect and your wax is just perfect and your boots are packed just perfectly. Um, Kershaw kind of brought this up in his show. Like This is kind of how he was. Like This is my one window of opportunity to accomplish what I want to do on the World Cup. So I'm going to make sure I've checked every box, I've dotted every I and crossed every T. And what he realizes looking back is that that in and of itself carries some level of emotional and physical load and it impacts performance. Okay, true, fair. However, doing those things really well is also setting yourself up for optimal performance. So... I think the secret is, oh, sorry, on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who even in on the World Cup are like, oh, none of this actually really matters. I'm just going to be loosey-goosey. I'm going to focus on process. I'm never going to like put pressure on myself. I'm never going to care that much about this because it doesn't really matter. And because of that, their performance also suffers. So like many things in life, you must be able to hold tension. You must be able to reconcile the paradox that is at play that there are two truths at once going on you must be able to on the one hand be hyper dialed in and and be setting yourself up for optimal optimal performance and doing all of the little things right and caring deeply about how the outcome is because it really does matter because uh, and 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 honing in on your s- fundamental philosophy of success and the fact that you being the best version of you today is extremely important, but also being competitive is extremely important. And if you can win, you ought to go and win. You have to have that. But you also must hold on to this idea that this is ski racing. None of this actually really matters in the long term. And and there's not that many people even tuning in or caring. But even if there were, even if this was the World Cup of soccer or the Super Bowl, it doesn't matter in the grand eternal scheme of things. It has no bearing on your value as a person. It has no. It actually isn't even connected at all to who you are or your identity. You know, you must hold the, both of those things. So it does bother me actually when some athletes kind of preach the one side of kind of like you know it's not it, one day at a time and and I'm just going to focus on process and outcome doesn't really matter. It's like. You, you can't just preach that. I, I would love to hear someone kind of like preach the paradox, so to speak, and be hyper aware and go, it's okay. You can hold both of these things in tension. Um, and that's actually the secret is to know that both of these things are actually true. Both of them share hints of truth as, and um, can be true at the same time. I think I hear my daughter, Novi trying to wake up. So might need to take a quick break here when I get back to doing finishing the recording of this show. Um, oh, oh, sorry, of course, we're live on Shovel Lake Public Radio, so we're actually going to switch to a two-hour performance 
of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony here on Shovel Lake Public Radio, performed by the Minnesota Orchestra under the baton of Nikolai Krishkoshkoshkoshkosh um, and principal trumpet player Manny Lariano. Here you go. We'll be back. Thank you for listening with us this far. All right, we interrupt this broadcast of Beethoven's Fifth to return to the Cedar Skier podcast here on Shovel Lake Public Radio. So thank you for coming back. <clears throat> I got a couple of emails I want to read today from listeners. I know it's shocking to some of you that we even have such things, but I'm not going to share names of the emailers just because, um, you know, I don't know if that's okay, if they want those opinions uh, <laughs> to be attached to them necessarily. But we're so happy that you that we get these emails. I love it. So if you have an, ever an idea, a hot take, something like that, please shoot us an email. Cedarskier at gmail.com. All lowercase S-E-D-E-R-S-K-I-E-R. Cedarskier at gmail.com. Um, you could probably also just Google me or look me up on Facebook, and I bet you'll find me and figure out which one I am, which one of the Ryan Cedarquists in this world is the one you're listening to right now. But here's an email. Um, it said, this is referring to our last show. We talked a little bit about pro skiing, what that would look like. And uh, this emailer says, <clears throat> By the way, in the tour of potential pro ski clubs, you left out Germany. Really important market for skiing and money. Oberwiesenthal. Oh, I'm just probably screwing that up a lot. Or Oberstorf or Rupolding and Franz Grenoble or Chamonix. First point on there. Yeah, the, the good, good point. I think on my list that I had, I'd actually <clears throat> wrote down some of those ideas like I know we have to hit these countries and I just didn't bring it up so it was on it was on the back burner of my mind for sure but I appreciate you pointing out that yes we would definitely need those and I I mean especially Germany I think like well France too but Germany like yeah the technology the money the markets the excitement there it, you definitely got to wrap them in it would be critical <clears throat> um France when you think of France by the way it's kind of crazy like someone I heard on this other podcast does France care about football like soccer and this guy he's like well of course they do and and but also France like France cares a lot about a sport like cycling you know that's a really interesting country from a cultural athletic standpoint of like what really matters a lot to them um and I mean I as an American I I know I'm super naive about that I mean, I even, I read um, a book on cycling about the Italian, oh, now I'm forgetting his name. I don't want to go uh, pick it up, but he was the guy who won the Tour de France 12 years apart. And in between, he was like using his bike to shuttle important documents and papers for Jews during World War II. Um, and, you know, just, they were talking about just the cycling pride in Italy and how big of a deal that was. I just found that really interesting how, and actually just athletics in general, you know, especially during, um, I think, the, you know, like the communist era there with Mussolini and or fascism. Uh, it was very reminiscent of kind of the propaganda that you see in like Soviet Russia. And it just kind of it just kind of opened my eyes a little bit to think about like how certain um, countries really culturally value sports. And like really, if you think in America, we don't really have even though like basketball and and, and the, the major sports, well, really like basketball and football, you would have to say there's no chance any other country right now can like unseat us. And I mean, in the four major sports, we're, we're pretty good. Ajay, do you have something to add? What? Don't you dare bark. It's okay. Was it something I said about Germany? 
Or is there a squirrel outside? Okay, calm down, go back to sleep. Um, I think the American, uh, the USA, it seems, it seems like winning, you know, is kind of like, like that's our pride thing is we're all going to come together every four years at the Olympics and we, and we, we want to win stuff, you know, and like winning <laughs> the most Olympic medals is like a big deal, you know, because we, we do have, we're a huge country. We're very different from coast to coast in what is even available to do, you know, like cross country skiing isn't possible in Miami, Florida. Um, and so, which I think makes our country kind of interesting. Like there's pockets of pride in different sports, but some of these other nations, like it's very specific. So Germany's kind of interesting. Isn't, I think Germany's pretty rich biathlon history too now, maybe. Uh, okay. Continuing. I think the best analog for a good pro league model would be formula one or golf, not confined to a stadium on a course where participants are not visible all the time people able to line the entire course and be a bit active even in spectating okay hold on i think the best analog for a good pro league pro league model would be formula one or golf not confined to a stadium on a course where participants are not visible all the time but people are able to line the entire course and be a bit active even in spectating and it makes for good tv if there are er enough cameras to cover the entire course at least for those who are interested Mm, good idea yeah yeah, Formula One, golf, um, that's interesting. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, I definitely think like, you know, I think of golf, right? They don't, as far as not confined to a stadium, I think that's where he's going there. Like when you watch that, it's not like we've got this huge, you know, they have they have the galleries around the 18th hole and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, along, along the course, it's like very, very up in your face, which is, I kind of feel like in some venues this is possible. Like Holman Colon kind of um, brings this about really well, where where fans can kind of line the stadium in a similar way golf fans line a fairway, and then also in the stadium it's a little more like the gallery at the 18th hole. Um, I do, I haven't watched a lot of Formula One. What I know obviously is Formula One is very attractive. It's got a great, uh, it's got a lot of money because people love it. You know. It's interesting too. A lot of times when I talk to people who follow it, they're 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 like drawn into it because oh, I saw the Netflix documentary. So, and 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 they kind of sell it to me like, well, the product is just that good that I'm interested. So, I don't have Netflix. I don't not able to watch it, and it's like, I guess I just have to go and trust you on that. But it it really does blow my mind that people could be really engaged with Formula One because. Car racing to me just doesn't, it doesn't sound appealing, but I mean, I know that's what a lot of people would say about Nordic skiing. You know, if you're not a skier, it's just like, how could you watch this? This is just boring. Um, so yes, I think you're right, emailer, that those, those models could be extremely successful. I think tilting that way. Um, and I know on my show, I kind of was like, oh, let's just do it like the NBA, NFL, blah, blah, blah. Um, maybe, maybe what I'm trying to say there is, <laughs> more listen to myself trying to decide what I'm trying to think I think like the team structure in terms of open market trades free agency coaching all that stuff I like what I see in the NBA and the NFL because I think it creates narratives and storylines because I think it allows for equity across the board and the ability for teams and markets to move up and down 
um, and and fans to stay interested. So I do think that's important. I think unless you're a golf fan, it's really hard to know why I should cheer for this one person or who I should even cheer for or what events are important. Whereas like it's very easy for a casual fan to get caught up to speed just to watch the Super Bowl every year. It's amazing, you know, and 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 I think the reason that fantasy football exists and the reason why there's daily talk shows about pro football is because of the narratives that exist around teams and players. And some of that structure, I think, is important where you allow teams to trade. You allow like, you know, I think it just would be exciting to see a team. Uh, that has seven starters and seven or eight bench skiers, and they're all different countries. And, you know, if someone's not performing well, they might get cut. If some team thinks that they want to trade for another athlete because of certain dynamics that could bring, that could happen. Um, there's no, like, all Norwegian staff on Wax Techs. It's just all spread out. Uh, I think I think that would add to the narrative, and it would create some equality that I think is important. I, I can't speak for Formula One, so I don't know if that's kind of also present where like there's teams that you really get excited for if it's mostly individuals. Uh, but I just think, and, and I know maybe there's not a good example of this happening in pro sports right now where like uh, a sport that is seen as kind of individual, running, skiing, biking, people care a lot about the teams more than individuals. Like even the Tour de France, people aren't, really excited to see the u.s postal service win another tour tour of france it was like all about lance armstrong and even though the team was very present it was very notable not the same thing as the new york yankees what i will say is if you have ever run uh in you know division one two or three cross country or track and field for some some reason like there is an immense amount of pride and interest and narrative storyline behind the teams and the individuals that is what i wish we had in skiing somehow because it is it's really exciting when you go to a cross-country race and you have a team battle that you're intrigued by and individual battles that you're intrigued by that is the peak level of excitement i think from high school all the way through college And I, and I wish I saw it more in the pro. I wish I saw it in pro running too, but I, I feel like it's possible to make it happen in skiing. <clears throat> it's just that right now, it's not that there's the team battle isn't really set up to mean much, and the individual stuff is so much higher stake. I mean, even like the Norwegians don't even get along with each other, you know, on the team side of things, and then they kind of try to pull it together for the Olympics. But anyway, I don't know. That's a good point, though. His final paragraph here, he says, the other thing that doesn't get stressed enough is the demanding nature of the sport. Look at Klabo, Diggins, Johag, Bjorgen, Juve, Pellegrino, Bolshinov. These are among the best athletes in the world in any sport. They are like Usain Bolt, Tour de France winners, marathon elites. Thousands of people turn out to see these people. Okay, so um, the demanding nature of the sport. Can't argue against that. It's very demanding. The best athletes in the world in any sport. This one's tough. I think this is one of those you could have like, entire podcast where you're talking about this like where are the most elite athletes in the world right now um because i i tend to believe that the cream of the crop goes where the money is for the most part um and it, it this this depends on definitions like how you're defining athletic how you're defining um you know 
yeah, how you're defining the cream of the crop. Like, what is this actually? Because I, I do think, like, while LeBron James is maybe the most, the biggest ano- anomaly athletically and might be one of the greatest athletes that's ever lived just physically from a physical standpoint and then adding obviously his his skill acquisition and dominance in his sport he might be the greatest of all time and I'm not even really a LeBron fan I'm just objectively trying to call it as it is like if you're a six foot eight dude who's 250 pounds and you can literally jump 48 inches off the ground and shoot from 30 feet with accuracy and handle the ball and then you add like your ability to see the floor well, understand basketball sense, dynamics, acumen, all that stuff. Like, sorry, that that's amazing, you know? And he's just, he's physically, he has tools that he never asked for, he just got. So there's that. But there's also, I think, a level of elite world-class athletes that, like, exist in the random gravel race. <laughs> that Trinidad gravel race I did, 165 miles, you know, it took me, like, almost 12 hours to do. The winner was a guy from Boulder who did it in, I think, 801 or, you know, 805. He wants to try and break eight hours. I mean, essentially, riding a 165-mile race on dirt, 20 miles an hour, solo. He ran, rode the last 110 miles by himself. Like, to me, I kind of look at that and go, okay, that's like another level. Or if you're a runner, like he brings up marathoning here, like if you are someone who can run a marathon under three hours, that's way above average for a normal person, especially if you're um, a woman, but for sure, even for men, 248, that's pretty good. And um, if for men, you break 230, you have to be pretty serious about running. If you break 220, you're probably not only very, very serious, but also quite talented. But, but the difference between like a 218 marathon guy and a 210 marathon guy is insane. And then you look at like a 210 guy and Kipchoge at 159. I mean, so that's just a whole nother gap. Now, I, I kind of personally right now feel like in cross-country skiing, the Kipchoge's who exist, I'm, I'm not even sure if we have a Kipchoge. But if we do, it's probably Clavo. Um, he's so dominant. Uh, okay, backing up. The reason I, th- I say that is I think the pool you're pulling from is just not big enough. So if you're screaming at your radio right now, um, that that's what I mean by that is like, it's not that cross-country skiers aren't athletic or they are not great. It's just, it's simply a numbers thing. Like the sport's still so niche that they can't pull from the same talent. It's kind of like soccer was in the U.S., like even 10 years ago, where they're like, our best athletes don't play soccer, they play football. So, you know, like, and you look at the pool then, and it's like, it's just not our best athletes. You know, if Adrian Peterson played soccer, we'd be amazing. And and there is definitely some truth to that. I know Europeans hate that, but it's, it's just, it is true. Like, so when you, when all you really have and care about is like soccer and some of these fringe, you know, fringe sports, biathlon, soccer, cross-country skiing, um, <laughs> you know, th- that chess, I don't know. I'm just like being mean to the European listeners now. I'm sorry. But like when you have that and when a, a more homogenous cultural focus on a sport, I think then like, okay, everyone's focused on that. They're really good. But like globally, you know, where the money is and all of that. I mean, there's something to be said there, especially in the U.S. Like our best athletes aren't going to cross-country skiing. So even if we have our very best athlete, it's hard to say that like, is that person world-class? Like that's a really hard thing to know, I think. Um, it's it's probably happened though. 
I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't want like to get hate mail from people. So if you're, if you're ready to send me a hate message, like, wow, you have no respect for what the, what athletes have come before us in America have done. That's not really what I'm trying to say. I'm just simply trying to say like, uh, you know, as I look at as a, as an athletic, as a fan, and I, I try to admire, you know, wow, that is world class. That's what world class athleticism looks like. I think it's possible for cross country skiers to kind of be in a bubble and they might not always have an accurate perception of it because if they've only been in the cross country ski bubble, they sort of see the best skier as obviously being world class. And that's maybe not necessarily true. If you line up every single sport next to one another and, and take the very best athletes from all those sports, the Randy Mosses, the LeBron James, just the physical specimens, the Kip Choges, the Bolts. I mean, Bolt is insane as well. That, that That is what world-class athleticism looks like. And the reason is, is because he's maybe the only human that's ever been able to do what he can do. Whereas you can't really say that about any cross-country skier, probably. You know, there hasn't been someone who is so transcendent that five years later, the next guy is, is also now the World Cup leader and he's the best and he's not that much different. That's why I, I kind of say Clabo might be the first really like, okay, that's what world-class athleticism looks like uh, because of that. But I mean, you could probably scientifically data, data-wise prove me a little bit wrong. You, you look at some of the VO2 max numbers of some of the Nordic ski athletes and go, well, what about this guy? You know, he's got the highest value ever recorded. And I mean, I'd shoot back and go, well, yeah, he, he's recorded it using cross-country skiing, which is going to lend the highest results by a lot. So like, I mean, if Bjorn Dolly, I know he ran, what, 809 maybe for 3K, that's phenomenal. That might be enough for me to go, that's world-class athleticism because he doesn't even run like a true runner. He's skiing and he can still run that fast. But that's still 809. There's like, there are dozens of D3 runners who can run eight, uh, that time every year. So, you know, if a random dude in Iowa can also run that time, can I really say that that on that basis, Bjorn Dahl is world class? No, you know. So I don't know. It's it's a tricky debate. I love I love straight the pot here too. So uh, hopefully, emailer. Hopefully, you get a kick out of my response from from that. Maybe it was wasn't really what I expected. I'm sorry if it wasn't. I don't want to hurt your feelings. Nothing personal in there. I I actually do really appreciate that, and I think you brought up uh, a lot of great points here that I definitely have to chew on. No doubt. Uh, got another email as well, so I'm going to read that that to you in a second right after the break well um it i've i've just checked in with the vimeo live stream here u.s cross-country ski and it says it's off air right now so they had the cool little countdown that said it was gonna go it's not going so i don't know what's going on here but we can't give you any live updates as as or live reactions i guess to the u.s cross-country ski nationals that's taking place uh <laughs> anyway and and also uh, hopefully you've enjoyed the show so far. I know we, we do a little bit of rambling and I have, I had my notes here. I had some, some thoughts to kind of get to on tour to ski stuff and, and kind of walking through some of the race. I, I even wrote notes. Why do I even do this? If I'm not going to do this? Uh, so sad, very sad really. But I also do have an email. I want to read another email. Um, okay. So here we go again. I can, not gonna say this guy's name just so you know, protect the identity, but he is a member of Grip Wax Nation, it sounds like. Uh, he's been binging on past Cedar Skier.com, Cedar Skier podcast episodes, which is great. We're thrilled about that. 
Um, so here we go. Hot take here. He says, if Ben Ogden can keep this momentum going all season, the U.S. ski team needs to give him the Jesse Diggins treatment and get him his own coach. He's delivering in the sprints and distance, the only non-one-trick pony on the men's team. He's also doing this while taking graduate engineering courses. Very impressive. Kevin Bolger gets B-team funding, and he's only qualified for one sprint quarterfinal. And if the Russians were racing, he wouldn't have even made the heats. Apparently, the U.S. ski team sees great value in the kissy face selfies with Maya Dahlquist and isn't worried about results. I think he qualified 70th today. Seriously? Another hot take. Be very leery of signing Dartmouth or other top school graduates who can quit the U.S. ski team at any time and get a good job. U.S. ski team loves to screw the David Norris's every year, a guy who showed how committed he was to skiing. Anyway, enough of my rant. Back to the fireball whiskey. Who knows? Maybe Bulger nips Kruger at the line in the skate race tomorrow. And he laughs at the end there. So a lot of stuff to chew on there. I think um, the Ben Ogden thing, he definitely has the momentum going where he, he seems to have hit another level compared to the other guys on the team right now. I, I'm not sure. It's it's weird because it's like, what's the difference between between uh, Ben Ogden, Gus Schumacher, Zach Ketterson? You know, um, to me, I, I feel like if I line those three up, I'd go, okay, Schumacher has the stage presence. He's, he's won a World Juniors. He kind of knows what that looks like. Um, I would look at Ketterson and go, this guy's kind of more the physical specimen, you know, and um, and he should be able to compete kind of with anyone in anything, it seems like. And I, I mean, I just think in terms of engine, he seems like he's got the best one. And Ben Ogden, it's like, I can't even really, he's just kind of got that squirrely, you know, I'm going to do what it takes to win kind of thing. And um, I, to me, Ogden also seems like the guy who like, if there was a course that had a really ripping downhill and he's in a pack, there's something about him, like, I don't know if it's his, we had him on the show a couple of years ago, you know, talking about, like, mountain biking, crazy descents, and, you know, he's got the Vermont upbringing, where, like, skiing through woods just doesn't freak him out at all, and my first time I ever saw Ben Ogden, we were out in um, um, Canada, you know, for a Thanksgiving training camp, and they set up this race, and I just kind of remember this one hill being kind of freaky that they had the athletes going down, and Ogden just absolutely ripping the downhill fearlessly and fast and he just destroyed everyone. And I was kind of like, wow, that's crazy. You know? And so I guess I'm like a crazy downhill. I, I feel like I trust Ogden more, but then again, he's kind of had some, a tendency to have weird things happen to him in the sprints too. So it's hard to really know. Like he's definitely not a Clabo type guy who can keep himself on his skis no matter what. Uh, so I don't know. Yeah. What, what does it mean? If you give him the just digging treatment and you give him an extra coach, like, what does that actually do? I, I mean, they always talk about how important Cork is, <clears throat> but what's the most important thing he's giving to, like, Just Diggins? I, I would be curious to know that. Like, um, I feel like if the – I'm just going to totally guess here, but I kind of feel like if you asked Jesse Diggins that, she'd, she'd have kind of like a wide-ranging response. Like, it's everything from he knows he knows how I ski so he can make the fastest skis for me, you know, cause that's important too. like knowing relationship of skier to ski to conditions. Let's get, make sure there's fast skis. He also like would just know her personally. So kind of know how to interact and pre-race discussions, post-race discussions, training week, just like everything in between, just kind of keeping you on an even keel and at your best mentally, I could see that and setting up the long range training program too, to kind of match that. But I don't know. Something to me feels like 
there's a little bit of an overratedness to that too. Oh, I have to rant about this coaching concept actually when that comes up. But first, let's st- I'll try to stay focused here. So anyway, I, I mean, yeah, if that's if that's something where Ben Ogden was like, oh, that would take me to the next level, or or like, you know, what this emailer is saying too is like that definitely would take it to the next level, then he probably does warrant that. Like he's starting to really bust through. So give him everything that he needs to make it happen. I I would even actually kind of throw into this too. If I was like a ski brand, you know, Ogden loves his Mazus. That's what Ketterson said. (laughs) But like if I was someone who felt like, okay, let's give him the the up, up the ante on the service side of things. Like we're gonna we're gonna give him one of those guys that that uh, cleans out his ski boots before each heat. Do it. Like that's what I would do. I'd be like, he's he's young, he's coming up. Like let's make sure we have him because yeah, you don't want to be sitting on the outside if he does all of a sudden win a few World Cups and now he's a bona fide star. All it takes is like two or three World Cup podiums and now you're legit. You know, and and he definitely is capable of doing that. I mean, if he qualified for it, I think you know there's. He could have just as easily been on the podium as he was eliminated from the heats. <clears throat> now, his hate on Kevin Bolger, poor Kevin Bolger. I got to you know, stand from my Midwest guy. I think Bolger's had kind of a disappointing season by his own admissions. You know, if you follow him on social media, it is a little bit unfortunate. Uh, but, you know, hopefully he can come around too. I think, I do think he has some talent there. So it's, yeah, it's like, I don't know. I don't want to throw him under the bus, but I guess you did it for me. Um, also, the Dartmouth thing. This is interesting too. I think I brought up on another podcast. Um, you know, I was talking about um, Ko, amazing skier, um, and she didn't make the Olympics. Now she's walked away from the U.S. ski team. Another athlete, Hannah Halverson. I think this is all referring back to the. I think it was a show where I I titled it Devin Kershaw nails it. You know, talking about how at the highest level of sport, it really does require just an exceptional level of dedication. And and his point was basically like, if that's not for you, that's cool. But that is kind of the reality of it. Um, And I think my point coming back even to, or adding to that conversation was just, you know, in sports like the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, you you don't really make it unless like you really sell your soul to it. You think of like the Kobe Bryants and the Michael Jordans and LeBrons and all that, like uh, just another level of of selling themselves out to winning and the sport in general. And I'm not even saying that that's like a healthy thing. You know, for me personally, I think it, it maybe goes back to what we said about paradox. Like really, you have to hold two things, two truths together at once and in that on the one hand, you got to almost have this, this is everything mentality and, and the the true Kobe Bryant, Black Mamba mentality. And then on the other hand, you, you really have to hold like my identity is not found in cross-country skiing at all. And that that's where I, that's at least where I stand is like Kobe got it wrong by literally putting his identity in winning, but he didn't get it wrong in his level of dedication to excellence. And so where I see us missing the mark perhaps is athletes sometimes go, Oh, it's a mistake to like go all Kobe Bryant on the bit. So I'm going to dial it back a little bit. And Devin Kershaw saying like, Hey, if you want to be a pro athlete and be like the best in the world, uh, you know, you have to do this. And he brought up this doctor analogy 
and kind of like talking about how, you know, to be a doctor period does require a certain level of dedication, type A personality, studying, time, patience, hard work, etc. And then to win like a Nobel Prize, it's like a whole nother level of that. And um, I think that does actually fit well with cross-country skiers, the analogy, because to be the best cross-country skier in the world requires another level of type A, another level of talent, another level of dedication. And yet just to be a cross-country skier, period, certainly does require still dedication, patience, hard work. You know, it's just not on the same level as the Nobel Prize guy. Um, And so we sort of do seem to have this tendency where, you know, athletes who don't need to be all in because they have other options because of their degree, because of their family wealth status, whatever, like they're not desperate. This isn't their ticket out. Um, And I think I brought that up on that show as well, kind of tying it even to like when you see Kenyan distance runners like who really go all in, it's the motivation is present partially because this is their ticket to a better life. So yeah, maybe I don't think there's anything against the Dartmouth ski team in particular. I don't, I haven't met enough skiers on that team to know like what the vibe is like either. But I mean, I think the point is like, if you graduate from Dartmouth, you've got, you've got options. So you might be a fantastic skier, but you know, when push comes to shove, it's, it's probably really hard to ascertain whether a skier from any college or from anywhere really is all in, um, and really wants to be a skier. Like that's, that's the thing that they really want. So yeah, I, I would, I guess I'd maybe just push back and saying, yeah, you know, let's not throw Dartmouth under the bus here necessarily, because I think the principle is more that, if you are not, um, if you're not in a position, if you're not positioned to sell yourself to skiing, which almost no Nordic skiers are, you know, by just by by the nature of the sport, it lends to such that it's it's usually not a ticket out of poverty for anyone. Well, but then then being the judge of motivation here for these skiers is tricky. It's hard to know who is going to be in the long haul, who is really going to go Kobe Bryant on the bit. Um, and that kind of did tie in that discussion on that show, I think is really relevant about what Brian Fish told me is like one of the most important things in talent identification is the, do they want to be a skier identification? And he said, it's just really difficult for them to, to gauge that all the time. I think the more I think about it, the more that, that, that is really true. Like it's, it is almost you know, boiling down to like who really wants it the most and who's willing to do what it takes. Um, so I don't know, but thank you for the email. Appreciate it. As always, it's fun. If you've got more emails, you can send them to cedarskier at gmail.com. So just a couple quick wrap ups. I know we're like going way around in circles a lot here, but, um, you know, I want to bring up one thing that I haven't touched on from the tour to ski here on this course. One thing is when I was watching the women's race in the 10K, sort of, you know, trying to decide who I thought, th- this thought just popped in my head, like, who do I think is better here, Jesse Diggins or Frida Carlson? Obviously, Jesse's not having the tour she really wants to be having so far. That could change. There's still some room to open up. Um, Frida Carlson is is doing well, and she's, what what is her standings here? Let's pull up the current tour to ski standing so here's the men Clabo leads by the way Clabo's got a 10 second advantage over Pellegrino Paul Goldberg's in there um so it's Vang it's Niskanen and 
Frieda Carlson all kind of in a three-way tie for total time, it looks like. Okay. So, and then Shirsikava, two seconds back. Latovang, 22 seconds back. Henning had a great race, 42 seconds back. Rosie Brennan in seventh, 45 seconds back. Rosie Brennan's going to have to do a lot here in this Oberstdorf one, right? A couple distance races. She's really going to have to pour into that. But I think she has a great shot uh, right now because she can do well in those distance races. She can even do well in the freestyle sprint there at the end. You know, the final climb is going to be a brutal yeah, for everyone. So it'll be interesting if, if Rosie's kind of like fighting for a top spot or gosh even like gets into the lead somehow that'd be crazy um niskanen though watch out too she really she could be a dark horse here because i mean i don't know if it's true dark horse but if she can do a ton in this classic interval start she'll probably be in the lead you know and then it's a a freestyle skate distance she's not going to be terrible at that either um and she might she might even have a better shot at the climb than Brennan does. Although, I don't know, Brennan Brennan really can go to the well and fight for pain there. So, yeah, look at the women's side. I mean, this is going to be, I think, an exciting tour to ski. Uh, and I think, you know, oh, gosh, if, if Jesse Diggins can have a better-than-normal classic interval start and really a, just an unbelievable 20K uh, the next day, you know, watch out because now you come back and you have another sprint race. She could, you know, that's always a little bit of a toss-up, but wasn't, didn't we have a sprint earlier in the year where Diggins had, like, the number one qualifying time and then didn't do great in the heats or something like that? Maybe I'm thinking of a previous year. I don't know. I should I should do more show prep. Anyway, um, but yeah, Frida versus Jesse in just a who's better, you know, just in general. Um, I don't know why that popped into my head so much, but I think my... I, it, if you have an opinion on it and why, just shoot me an email. My thoughts right now are, interestingly, you know, it's really very close. I don't trust either of them really in a sprint, but yet they both can definitely contend in sprints. Like even Frida, you know, in, on the broadcast, they're like, well, you know, she's not going to do as well in a sprint. She might want to take take the sting out of it. This is at when Fandrich was still in the in the realm of possibility, you know. But it's like, now Frida can sprint, though. You know, she's got a deceiving ability to sprint. And, like, she certainly could get to a sprint final. That's not out of the realm of the possibility. Um, but her and Diggins both kind of have, in sprints, it seems like they have a way of, you know, getting caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or I think it was, you know, I infamously the last tour to ski, and they both kind of tied each other up, you know, and they have kind of such a, a way about themselves competitively that, that they they do tend to run into some trouble there. Um, now, I think if there's an edge to Frida, it might be the fact that her classic skiing is phenomenal. You know, it, her, her distance classic skiing is phenomenal and her distance skate skiing is phenomenal. Whereas for Diggins, it's really kind of just distance skate right now. So right now, I kind of give the edge for Frida. Um just in general, but yeah, if you've got a hot take opinion on who you think is better of those two, um, send it my way because maybe the gap is closing. Frida kind of, you know, supposed to take the mantle from Teresio Hog, so I don't know if that's going to happen. So looking ahead, the next event, 
a 10k interval start classic, then a 20k pursuit free. Then they go to Val de Fiem for three events. It's a spring classic and a mass and a mass start classic. I mean, this is setting up really well for Kertu Niskanen, honestly. She's got a bunch of opportunities in classic races. Three classic races coming up, you know, and two of them are distance classic races. So to me, I feel like she's got it. The, the way paved out. I think she has an advantage over um, Tiro Unis Vang because, I, I don't know, I feel like Keratu is going to be better on that final mass start free if they're close. And the only event coming up here, really, that I would say Vang has an advantage on is maybe is the Sprint Classic. So, I mean, and Frida Carlson, obviously, she's got to be licking her chops as well. She is very, very well positioned to do this. I, Anna Shirsikova, again, another fourth by a hair I, I don't give her much of a shot, honestly, moving ahead forward. Um, so I, I think she might be kind of done. On the guy's side, let's see. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven Norwegians in the top ten. The only non-Norwegians, Porama in seventh, Novak in eighth, Pellegrino in second. Does Pellegrino have any chance? He's ten seconds back right now. No, I, I mean, I don't think so. Like, the, it, you know... Who are my favorites, though, going into Oberstorf? Like, with a 10K interval start classic and a 20K pursuit free. I mean, Goldberg should be someone really who could contend with this. You know, I know he was sick and missed when he missed the last World Cup, right, because of that. Um, but he was the yellow bib leader and everything. So, you know, he can he's shown he's a threat in distance and in sprints. I mean, you got to think Klaubo is going to take that spring classic. And then the mass start classic, he he could definitely win as well. You know, just kind of a sit and kick type situation. I think he won that either last year or was it two years ago when he won the whole tourist ski. So I, I really like him there. Kruger, though, you know, if he has a decent interval start classic, he's sitting right now in fourth, 28 seconds back. Like, if he could even just kind of pull even with Klabo or be just a little in front of him in that interval start classic, the 20K pursuit free, all of a sudden he could go into the front, you know. Um, I think it would be temporary if, if you got a spring classic and then a mass start classic to follow that. Um, but it would be exciting if Kruger was in striking distance for the, uh, uh, you know, coming into that final stage because, you know, the mass start free, he's going to have a great shot. Uh, Nyanget, he had the fastest time of the day um, uh, yesterday, and, you know, I, I don't think he's got much of a shot, but it's pretty cool for him to be right now in sixth place. But, yeah, I mean, I think I think right now it's going to be Klabo or Goldberg kind of coming down to the wire, and if things can go well for Kruger in, in a couple of those classic races, he could contend. Um, Novak's having a good tour for the Czech Republic, and and he can definitely do some stuff in the sprint. So if he can kind of stay relevant, you know, maybe that'll that'll bode well for him. How about Niskanen, 14th place? Ben Ogden sits in 17th right now, the top North American. And the next American on the list here, scrolling down. Let's make sure I don't miss anyone. Definitely possible that I might have. It looks like Hunter Wonders, 53rd. Is that correct? Wonders, 53rd. Ketterson, 58th, 229 back. Scott Patterson, 61st. Gus Schumacher, 62nd. And there are Kevin Bolger's in 85th. There's 94 people in the Tour de Ski right now. JC, 
88th. All right, so that, that'll pretty much do it, I guess. Um, I said, okay, remind me of my coaching rant. I'm going to put that down for the next show because we've already gone pretty long here today. So hoping to get on the pod again after tomorrow's races or at least after we get the next two races under our belt. We'll, we'll hop back on. We'll discuss some tour de ski stuff. And we'll maybe have to talk some U.S. Nationals as well. Hopefully out there, you guys, you've, you've set some good goals I always think New Year's resolutions, it's tough, man. You don't have to make a New Year's resolution. I like New Year's goals because, you know, resolution, if you if you really if you really should be changing something massive in your life, just do it now. It doesn't matter that you don't have to wait till January 1st. But I always think it's kind of fun to coordinate the year, you know, set some goals. What are some things you want to do? What are some things you want to have happen? Trips you want to take, um, you know, races you'd like to do bucket list items you want to do if you have something kind of cool you can send that to an email too it'd be kind of kind of fun to read that off but that's i think what the new year's goals are all about you know is write down a list of things that you hope you can do in 2023 and then you can look back and remember some of the fun memories you had and some of the successes the highs and the lows it's all good um so yeah hopefully hopefully getting the new year off to a great start And we really appreciate you listening to the Cedar Skier Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Keep on striving. Keep on skiing.